We continue our worship this morning by looking at John chapter 16. Today, when we think of persecution, we might think of, for example, the mayor of New York City in the last month or so threatening to permanently close any church that continues to meet during this pandemic. We might think of the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky or Greenville, Mississippi, instructing police to issue fines to drivers simply for being parked in church parking lots. Or when we think of persecution, we might think of Christians being sent to labor camps in North Korea, or gunmen killing dozens of Christians assembled at church in Burkina Faso. When we think of persecution, we sometimes get angry, and we are prone to rebellion. In our country, we are quick to argue for our rights, which we do believe are God-given. But when we think of persecution, we also need to consider God's plan. Joseph famously said in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This statement really could be applied to so many instances of persecution throughout the history of the church. I want to read for you today an obituary that was published just this last week. It was written by Steve Saint. He's the son of um, Nate Saint, who was a missionary killed in the 50s. He writes this in this obituary. He says, He was born into a violent Stone Age culture in the Amazon rainforest of eastern Ecuador, South America. Mincaye, whose name means wasp, died April 28, 2020. At home, in the tiny village of Tapino, of natural causes related to old age. He was somewhere between 88 and 91 years of age. Minkaye is survived by his wife, Omapode, 13 children, 50-some grandchildren, and many, many great-grandchildren, tens of thousands of people who saw him as proof of God's redeeming and transforming power. He says, When Grandfather Minkaye, as we affectionately knew him, helped five other Wadani warriors spear my father, Nate Saint, also Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian, and Ed McCulley to death on a river sandbar in 1956. There was no reason to believe anyone outside of his small clan and the five bereaved families would ever take note of that incident. Nevertheless, millions of people in North America and Europe followed radio news releases that five North American missionaries were missing in the Ecuadorian jungle. For most of a week, there was no word of their fate when a search party finally found their five spear-riddled bodies. The question was, why? He continues in this obituary. He says, the term tragedy accompanied virtually every radio, newspaper, and magazine article as the news of these vicious and seemingly senseless killings spread. But 64 years later, it seems clear that Genesis 50, 20 
was about to come true again. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. There's been no greater ambassador of that message than the life of Grandfather Wasp. Minkaye is also the main character of the feature film, The End of the Spear. When End of the Spear in book and movie form became available, Minkaye traveled around the United States and Canada telling his life's story. This amazing jungle warrior, who counted only up to 20 on his fingers and toes, personally impacted hundreds of thousands of people in audiences as large as 45,000. The movie in which his life plays a leading role has now been translated into the mother tongues of approximately one quarter of the world's population. Minkaye's most frequent speaking theme was, We lived angry, hating and killing for no reason, until they brought us God's markings. Now those of us who walk God's trail lives happily and in peace. And then he would often ask, how long do you, did you have God's markings before you brought them to us? Well, I don't know. But maybe if we, if we had known sooner that the Creator did not see it well that people should live angry, hating and killing for no reason, we could have walked God's trail sooner. Saint continues, he says, there are people who question the motives of the five missionaries who made contact with the Wadani in 1956. There are some who question Minkaye's motives in participating in ten speaking tours to the U.S. and Canada, trips to Europe, Panama, and even India. I can only answer that I was Minkaye's traveling companion on all of those trips. We traveled together, ate together, shared the same room, and spoke together. I have known Minkaye since I was a little boy, and he took me under his wing and had his sons teach me to blowgun hunt. He was one of my dearest friends in the world. Yes, he killed my father, but he loved me and my family. One of my grandsons is named Minkaye. We will miss you, Meme Minkaye, but we hold on to the certain hope that we will see you again. Again, that was written by Steve Saint. The church has survived, and we could argue has thrived and and been strengthened as a result of persecution. We've also survived pandemics. We've survived wars and natural disasters. The people of God have survived all these things because of the promises of God. Jesus proclaimed, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. And so here in John chapter 16, Jesus makes similar promises. And as we read today's passage, I I want you to keep in mind, as we read through this, keep in mind that one of the promises that he has made is this, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Keep that statement from uh, chapter 14 in your mind as I read John 16 verses 1 through 15. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember 
that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Let's just stop again and pray one more time. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. We need the strength um, that only comes from you. We need the rest in what Christ has done. And we need the hope of what will come when you make all things new. Father, we pray that you would remind us of your truth today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the characteristics of John the Apostle's writings <clears throat> is that he almost, he almost writes kind of in spirals. So he begins thoughts and then he keeps kind of uh, coming back and adding to them more and more in, in more detail as he writes. So you can see this particularly in, in 1 John, but you can also see it here as Jesus goes on to reveal more details about the work of the Helper, which he's first introduced back in chapter 14. But not only does Jesus talk about the work of the Helper, the, the paraclete is the Greek word, the Holy Spirit, both in the church and in the world, <clears throat> but he also assures them of the continued presence of God in the life of believers. This is especially important because of the hour that they are facing, the hour where he will go to the cross. We could almost call this the Christian hour. The hour. Chapter 16 really continues the thought that Jesus had begun back in chapter 15. Namely, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. But then he also says, but when the Helper comes, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the world hates you, but I'm sending another Helper who will bear witness about me, who will remind you of me. Now when in chapter 16, verse 1, where he carries on this thread, we have to remember that he is, he is doing this to encourage and exhort his disciples even in the moments, the, the hours before his arrest, before his trials that we're going to see, before his crucifixion. And now in verse 1, he specifically tells them why he has been warning them. 
Look at it. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. To keep you from falling away. We're going to come back to that. But the thing that we need to remember is that the Christ-hating world will persecute the disciples. In fact, Jesus tells these 11 men that there are two things that Christ-haters will do to them. Beginning right there in verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will do uh, will think that he is offering service to God. So these two things, expelling them from the synagogues and killing them, are examples. And they represent the really the range of troubles that Christians will see, not the least of which was the first Christians. The, from the apostles themselves, from these 11 men themselves, to those who would be saved through their ministries. So think of those persecutions in the, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, in, in chapters 7, 8, 9. Think of Paul being thrown in jail. These are the things that cause doubt and fear in our minds. They will put you out of the synagogues, he tells them. The synagogue was central to Jewish, Jewish life. Christians are going to face rejection from the synagogues. Rejection from, this means rejection by their peers. Rejection by their neighbors. Rejection by their friends, sometimes even their families. I have no doubt that some of us in this church have faced that kind of rejection for standing firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ, for standing firm on, on biblical teachings and principles. And, and not to be too bleak, but Jesus reminds us that this is actually going to get worse. Because the other end of the spectrum is not only will they reject you, but he says they're going to kill you. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. This was true in the immediate for the apostles. At various times throughout history, we have seen this. This is exactly what the Pharisees did to Christ and and even to Stephen in Acts chapter 7. This is what Bloody Mary did during the English Reformation. It's what the Spanish Inquisition was all about. The list goes on and on. And so the question really is this. Will you be ready for it when it happens here? Are you training your kids and your grandkids to remain steadfast when the hour comes? Three months ago, this seemed like a far-fetched hypothetical, didn't it? Three months ago, we never would have dreamed that people in the United States would get tickets for going to church, fines for going to church, not even leaving the cars. Three months ago, all of this seemed hypothetical, but now we haven't met physically for six or seven weeks. Suddenly, these things aren't so far off. But instead of doubting, instead of being fearful, we we need to remember what Jesus is saying here. Even as he warns us, why did he say this? This brings us back to verse 1. 
He says to keep you from falling away. Or some other versions say to, so that you might not stumble. A more kind of literal translation, and I love the way this is worded, is this, to keep you from scandalizing your faith. Christ is saying these things to keep you from being so offended by how the world treats you that you apostatize, that you deny, outright deny the faith, outright deny, I am not one of them. Or even that you simply walk away, you simply drift off from Christ. I think this is the biggest danger for Christians during this pandemic. That sort of slow drift. I think it's a big danger for us that we would get comfortable on Sunday mornings and slowly stop listening to the sermons, stop reading our Bibles, stop praying for one another, and slowly drift away, fall away from our faith. If you find yourself saying or thinking how much you like not getting up and worshiping on the Lord's Day, how much you like forsaking meeting together, I believe you need to repent of that. I believe you need to stop yourself from drifting. Jesus has been continually reminding his disciples that he will not leave them alone. And while he's also been assuring them of God's sovereignty over their salvation, he doesn't give them a false hope that they will have pleasant, easy lives. But he's also telling him here that the biggest threat to their faith isn't from the world. The biggest threat to their faith is that they would scandalize, that they would fall away and not persevere. That's why he says that right in verse 1. I'm telling you these things that you might, to keep you from falling away, that you might not stumble. And he reminds us in verse 3, why the world will persecute Christians. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, Jesus says. Remember, he's speaking first to his disciples about the Jewish people. He's talking about his own people, particularly the leadership. Paul will write in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, he says, They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their own race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so they stood condemned already. Jesus is telling them all of this. We have this in his word, so that we will not fall away. So that in days like this, we would hold fast to his promises. That we would remember, verse 4, but I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Have you ever, have you ever been accused of being too Bible-y? I know I have. But this right here, that you would remember that I have told them to you, this is the importance of, of knowing and studying and meditating on God's Word. This is the importance of, of keeping God's Word in our hearts, that we might remember that He has told us these things. 
So, for example, really all of Psalm 119 is about God's word. But just listen to verses 9, 10, and 11. The psalmist writes, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Even the sin of wandering away, of falling away. Jesus says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. And something that should be of great comfort to us is this. It's not up to you. Just as you can't possibly save yourself, you also can't keep yourself saved. John MacArthur once famously said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And so we should understand this. Memorizing Bible verses, for example, that action by itself will actually be of little comfort without the work of the Holy Spirit. That actually will be of little comfort without, we could say, without the presence of God. The presence of God. Look, look at where he picks this up and uh, kind of in the middle of verse 4. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God always work together in the life, the heart, and the mind of the believer. These really are some of the overarching themes of, of this portion of Scripture and many others as well. This is, this is what He is preparing them for. See, He's transitioning them from being with Christ to being in Christ. Change is coming for them. He's preparing them. He's preparing them for the cross. He's preparing them for the resurrection, the ascension. He's preparing them for Pentecost when he will pour out his spirit upon them. And he needs to give them, even in these few verses here, he needs to give them a little bit of a rebuke. Because with all that he has taught them, even over these past couple of chapters... Instead of rejoicing that he was going to the Father's right hand, these remaining 11 disciples are filled with sorrow. He still isn't meeting their expectations for a Savior. Their hearts are still troubled. But again, he is assuring them. Look at verse 7 again. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, it is, the, it is the presence of the Holy Spirit, along with their remembrance of his word, that will sustain them as they face hatred, rejection, and even death. The same is true for us, right? Lord willing, we will meet next Lord's Day. But what if this pandemic had been as bad or even worse than the early scientific models predicted? What if it had? There have been horrific and widespread plagues before. If we were not able to meet together for months on end, 
or longer, we still can rest assured that the presence of the Holy Spirit is in our lives, along with our remembrance of His Word, and, and that will sustain us even to the point of death. And beloved church, the presence of God in your life isn't a feeling. If you're a Christian, it's a reality. This is the promise of God for, from Ephesians chapter 1. He's, Paul writes, In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. He truly has not left us as orphans. And not only has He made promises to us that are are trustworthy and true, He has called us to remember those promises even in the face of rejection and death and He has sealed us with a guarantee The Spirit Himself. And now he's going to get a little bit more specific here. What will this helper, the the paraclete, what will the Holy Spirit do? Well, there are two facets that he talks about. Um, He talks about his work in the world, and then he talks about his work in the church. So let's begin with the Spirit's work in the world. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. It's verses 8 through 11. So pick it up in verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus presents the work of the Holy Spirit as convicting. Sometimes we think of this in in the legal sense. Right, being convicted of a crime. But Jesus said back in chapter 3, verse 18, He says, Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So they're already convicted, legally speaking. So here, Jesus is using this in another sense. It is to bring conviction to. He's talking about working in the heart, and really both positively and negatively. Either the world will be brought to a conviction about what is wrong, about what the gospel says, about sin and righteousness and judgment, and therefore will reject Jesus Christ, or it will be convicted of its error and see what is right about the gospel, what is right about Jesus. The best illustration or example of this happening is Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2. If you remember that message, it comes right on the heels of of Pentecost, which was when uh, those believers in Jerusalem were first filled with the Holy Spirit as God fulfilled these promises here. And as Peter is remembering the things that Jesus had told them and is preaching the truth, and as the Spirit is working both in Peter's heart and mind, enabling him to preach, but also in in the hearts and minds of those who are listening in the world, Peter lays out their sin. And so in Acts 2.23, he says this in the middle of his sermon. He says, This Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, if Peter had said this to them even a day earlier, well, let's just say that if Peter had said this to them before the Holy Spirit was working in their hearts and minds, his sermon probably would have seen different results. Peter says this a month and a half or so after Christ's crucifixion. After these men killed Jesus. But the Spirit is now working. The Spirit is convicting them of sin. And so in Acts 2.37, this is how they respond. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. This is why Jesus says here that it is good, it is to our advantage that Jesus go away. See, Jesus accomplished our salvation while he was here by dying for our sin and rising from the dead. And the Spirit now applies what Christ has accomplished by giving us faith, by granting them this repentance. They were cut to the heart. The preacher, the preacher can only bring the Word of God to the people. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that brings the conviction of sin. Can you see how these things go together? Sometimes, sometimes preachers try really hard um, to manipulate the emotions of their listeners and convince them to immediately make some kind of decision. And, and hear me very carefully. Calling for a response of the gospel is obviously not a bad thing. I want to plead with you to respond to the gospel. It's not manipulation. But the work of true conviction is only something the Spirit can do. It's the preacher's job to proclaim the message and let the Spirit do the work of the convicting. But by itself, conviction doesn't save. And so the ministry of the Spirit's, his second ministry follows this. He also convicts the world of righteousness. Again, this can be negative or positive. So negatively, if they reject the gospel and they're relying on their own self-righteousness, they're saying, I'm okay, I don't need a Savior, I don't need no Jesus. And then, of course, the opposite of this is, I have sinned and I need Jesus. I've done horrible things and I need His righteousness. And see, he says, because I go to the Father. Jesus' righteousness was accepted by God. We know this because he rose. We know this because he ascended to the Father's right hand. The work of the Spirit is to convict sinners who will either deny Christ or trust in Him. Believe that they are guilty, but that Jesus died for our sins and grants His righteousness to us through faith alone. But the work of the Spirit continues. Read 11 again. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Do you understand that Christ saw his own death and resurrection as really as judgment on Satan? 
Listen to what Paul says was accomplished on the cross from Colossians 2, 13 to 15. Paul writes this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here's what I want you to hear. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan has already been defeated. To use the imagery of Genesis 3, he may have bruised the heel of the Messiah, but his head is as good as crushed. And so the world, if they continue to reject Jesus as Christ, the Son of God, is already judged along with Satan. Again, that's what he says in John 3.18. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the conviction of judgment. While this leaves us with the work of the Spirit in the church, the work of the Spirit in the church, we'll pick it up in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now, Jesus says. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Well, there, is, there is so much more here um, to say than we can cover today. But Jesus is not telling us that we will receive private intuitions or feelings from the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's specifically talking to the apostles or the men who will become the apostles. And one of those men, Peter, one of the people who heard these words those day, he will go on to explain in his second letter, in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, he will say this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is talking about here. The Holy Spirit has a ministry of the Word both in giving the word of God uh, to the apostles to write as scripture and in giving the word of God to, to us to read and to understand and be conformed to. And, and there are three aspects of this that he mentions. He says that the Spirit will guide you in all truth. The Bible, the truth of God, it is God-breathed. This is what Peter was talking about there in that letter in Second Peter 1. But it's also what Paul is saying in, in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, when he says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Holy Spirit guided the apostles and prophets in writing, and he guides us in understanding. And I know this is really, really fast on this section. But secondly... He will not only guide in all truth, but he will also glorify Christ. 
Remember, Jesus is the Logos, the Word. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The words are His. He even said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This Word of God is all about Christ. It's all about the work of Christ and the glory of Christ. And the work of the Spirit is to glorify Christ in and through and with the church. And then finally, he says that the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. Beloved, this is salvation. Think of Jonah. When Jonah found himself um, convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment when he was in the belly of the fish, this is what he cried out. He said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But with the voice of thanksgiving... But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah said that when he was in the, in the fish. When he found himself convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment, he finally came to the understanding that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In the end, this is what we will also declare with the heavenly host. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. John writes this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is where Mike and Chris would say, Amen. Do you know why those five missionaries were speared to death in 1956? It was so that Grandfather Minkaye might share the gospel. Think of the irony of this. So that Grandfather Minkaye might share the gospel with thousands of Americans and Europeans. But even more so, it was so that he might stand beside Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and the others in glory and proclaim, salvation belongs to the Lord. Those five guys went down to reach an unreached people group in Ecuador. And immediately they were killed. And all these decades later, one of those who did the killing is proclaiming in glory today, salvation belongs to the Lord. Do I know why we are seeing an increased opposition to our faith, to Christianity? No. Except to say that it is for the sake of the great multitude who will cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. When we read through this and we think of Jesus fortifying his disciples, strengthening them, encouraging them, saying these things to them to keep them from falling away, to keep them from scandalizing their faith. And we have to remember even Joseph's words back in Genesis. 
What man means for evil, God has intended for good so that many would be kept alive. Or we could say, so that multitudes would receive eternal life. Salvation belongs to our God. Pray with me. Father, I pray that we would hide these words in our heart, that we might not fall away, that we might not sin against you, that we might not scandalize our faith. I pray that we would hide these words in our heart, that we might proclaim with the great multitude, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Father, we praise you that you are in control. We praise you for your plan. We praise you that you have saved us and not left us as orphans, but have given us the Holy Spirit, that you have given us your words that we can remember. I pray that your Spirit would continue to work in our hearts and in our minds. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.